Hope you have your Bibles handy. We're going to start off in the Gospel of Luke today. Let's ask God's help as we begin. Lord, it's a blessing for us to be able to open your word, that it is so readily available to us that we can read it freely and uh, just put it in our hearts to read it more often. <laughs> and Father, as we do read today, we know that uh, in each of our lives, the, the blinders have been removed. And that was a miracle from you. So we can read your word with understanding. So send the Holy Spirit here today now, Father, as we open our Bibles and begin to read and teach us the lesson you have in store for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, in keeping with the story of the birth of Jesus Christ, this sermon is entitled, God Sends His Son to a Stable. And we're going to begin in Luke 2, beginning in verse 1. We'll read through the entire passage. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph went, also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. We'll stop right there and analyze this passage a little bit. The birth of Jesus is history. It's not a myth or a fairy tale. Now, Luke was not also only a gospel writer, but the Bible tells us that he was a physician and he was also a historian. So his version of the birth of Jesus Christ is filled with important historical facts because that's what he was all about. That's the way he thought. And notice as it says here that it was in the days of Caesar Augustus. So that's who was the overall ruler of the Roman Empire. And he issued a decree that a census be taken in the entire Roman world. So that gives us a time frame as to when this took place. But then he goes on to say further, this was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. So the, way, the reason he wrote those things was that anybody could look them up and see that this is an historical fact. <laughs> it's not just a made up story, but these rulers really existed. Now you can go home to your computer and Google these names and they will tell you that they're real people and give you the years that they actually rule, tell you about their whole life. So again, it's not a myth or a fairy tale. This is history. Notice, just briefly turn the page to Luke 3, verse 1. He's talking here about the beginning of John the Baptist's ministry. 
And he clarifies it even further for this event. He says here, Luke 3, verse 1, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Ituria, and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene. Furthermore, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the desert. That's history. And again, for this passage, you can look up all of these people, and they were real historical figures. So Luke wants to give as much credibility to his story, and those who read it can, like I said, prove it to themselves. Now, by contrast, the religions of the day where Jesus lived, he lived in the Roman Empire, and the Roman gods were based on traditions and stories that were very ancient. And there's no way of proving whether these gods existed. And there were a lot of stories written about not only the gods of the Romans, but the gods of the Greeks. Now, I remember in high school, I had to read a little uh, paperback book called Mythology. <laughs> and in that book, it listed all of the pantheon of gods of the Roman world and the gods of the Greek world. And they had a lot of gods. And although people worshiped these gods in the Roman and Greek empires, there was no real proof that they ever really existed. Uh, and a lot of people in those empires, even though they were forced by law to worship those gods, they didn't believe many of the stories that had been written about those gods. You know, uh, making them kind of acting like people and their gods kind of got into dramas and soap operas and, and things like that in their relationships with each other. So Luke, in the face of all that, of all the pagan gods that surrounded them at that time, Luke wanted to prove to anybody who reads his gospel account that this is history, that this really happened. So that's the first lesson I think we can learn from this passage here today. And that's why he takes pains to mention the historical facts behind the birth of Jesus Christ, who was ruling at the time, what was happening, and you can prove it historically. Now the second thing that I want to prove to you from this passage, as we read on a little bit further, is that this whole episode of Jesus being born was not controlled by fate but it was controlled by a sovereign God. God was in control of this whole uh, story of Jesus' birth. As it says here, verse three, everyone went to his own hometown uh, to register for the census. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem. So, why was Jesus born in Bethlehem? Why did they have to make this journey of 90 miles from Nazareth, where they were living before Jesus was born, all the way to Bethlehem, where Jesus was finally born? Why? Well, there was a prophecy back in the Old Testament that God was going to fulfill. Turn with me to Micah chapter 5. 
beginning in verse 2. Micah 5, beginning in verse 2. Now keep in mind that this prophecy was given by God to Micah 700 years before it actually was fulfilled. 700 years. And it says here in Micah 5, beginning in verse 2, Micah speaking to the town of Bethlehem, but you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. It goes on to say, Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor gives birth and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. So this was a prophecy 700 years earlier of the birth of the Messiah and it would happen in the town of Bethlehem. And as I said last week, Bethlehem means house of bread. And Jesus ultimately, as he explained himself, was a living bread, in fact, that we're going to partake of uh, symbolically with the communion service in just a little bit. So Joseph and Mary, so that this prophecy could be fulfilled, would have to get from Nazareth to Bethlehem, 90-mile trip. God knew that he had inspired the prophecy, and he knew that it would be fulfilled. So how did God fulfill this prophecy? Mary and Joseph had been living in Nazareth, but the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem. So if it was me organizing this, okay, I probably would have just selected a godly woman who already lived in Bethlehem and was engaged and fulfilled the prophecy through them. Or I would have give, given Joseph and Mary a personal reason to travel to, to Bethlehem. Maybe Joseph got a job offer there. and He was going for an interview. Or maybe uh, they had a sick relative there uh, and they had to travel to Nazareth. God didn't do it that way. A lot of times he doesn't do things my way or the way I think is the best or the easiest way to, to, to get it done. This is what God did. God stopped the whole Roman Empire for this prophecy to be fulfilled. How did he do that? Well, he proclaimed through the Roman Emperor, he inspired the Roman Emperor to proclaim a census so that everybody living in the whole Roman Empire, and the Roman Empire was big in those days, the biggest empire on, on all the earth, he caused the whole Roman Empire to come, come to a stop and everybody had to personally travel to the hometown of their ancestors. That's not the way I would have designed this, <laughs> but this is the way God did it. Caesar ruled the entire Roman world. All the people, all the people in the Roman Empire had to travel to their personal homeland for the census. So God could have done it an easier way, but he chose the hard way. Why? To prove he's in charge that he is sovereign. That's what it means, sovereign, in charge. He did it his way, and he wanted to prove that he could move a whole empire of people to fulfill one little prophecy for one little baby to be born in one little town. 
That's just amazing. God does things his way. And you know what? I've learned that lesson over the years, and I hope that I've fully come to learn it, that God does not answer the prayers that we lift up to him the way we think that they should be answered. <laughs> and I told you many a time, I've prayed to God for something in particular, and I've spelled out exactly how he should do it. And he never does it my way. He does it his own way. And you know what? It always turns out that his way is better. And it proves that he's in charge, and I'm not in charge, <laughs> okay? <laughs> so there are two lessons that we've learned real quickly here, that the story of Jesus' birth is not a myth. A lot of people today think it's a myth, or think it's just a fairy tale. It's a nice, pleasant story to read, but it really happened. And furthermore, God answered that prayer of Jesus being born in Bethlehem in the way that only he can contrive. And it was a, a marvelous and a fantastic way to fulfill that prophecy. And it involved an entire Roman Empire. And you know what? The people in the Roman Empire didn't even know what was going on. They just obeyed the ruler, the Caesar. And here it was actually God working things out so that the Savior could be born. A third way, or third lesson that I think we can learn from this passage in Luke chapter 2, we'll pick up the story again in verse 6. Luke 2 verse 6, it says, as they traveled to Bethlehem, he went there, verse 5, to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in clo cloths and placed him in a manger. Now we know that a manger is basically a feeding trough for animals. Uh, I don't know if they have one over there, but you generally see it in pictures. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now, that's an interesting story, and one that I wondered about for, for many years. If God, to fulfill this prophecy, was capable of, and certainly did, stop an entire empire for this prophecy to be fulfilled, why did he not reserve a room at the Bethlehem Hotel <laughs> so that they could stay in a nice, safe, clean place? I'm sure God didn't forget, but as we're going to see, he purposely worked it out so that there was not going to be a room at the inn, that there would not be a bed for Jesus to be placed in, that he was literally placed in an animal feeding trough, not the most desirable beginning for his life, but nevertheless, that's how it worked out. God could have reserved a room, but he chose not to. Why? God planned it this way for a reason. Now, I've got a few scriptures I'd like you to turn to. Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 57. This is something Jesus said a little bit later on in his ministry. It's, he said, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. 
Now, this was true of Jesus during his ministry when he was older, just as it was true when he was born. Foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. God intended it to be that way. Jesus had a poor beginning, and throughout his ministry, he did not have a lot of stuff. He did not have a lot of things. You know, as we seek things today, cars, homes, clothing, whatever the case may be. It was Jesus' purpose during his ministry here to not have a lot of fine things. Let's turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9. This is where the apostle says in 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9, Though he, Jesus, was rich, because before he was born as a baby in Bethlehem, he pre-existed as the Son of God for all time, for all eternity, before there was ever a universe. It was Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And... It was their, not just universe, but whatever dimensions they inhabit, it was all theirs. They created it. It belonged to them. So previously to his birth, Paul says, though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. So when Jesus was sent to earth to be born, to be incarnated as fully God and fully human. He became poor. He put all that he possessed aside so that through his poverty, we might become rich. So it's God's will and desire for us to share in what he possesses and that we will. We are co-inheritors with Jesus Christ, the Bible tells us. So we're looking forward to that. But in order for that to happen, in order for God to share all of that, he sent his son to become poor for our sakes. And through his poverty, we're going to become rich. We're already rich in a sense because all of the spiritual gifts in Jesus Christ have already been given to us. But our minds, we always think of physical things, physical wealth, possessions, and things like that. And I'm sure when we are fully changed and receive our reward, there are going to be things like that too. But it's going to be beyond our comprehension, so we don't even need to talk about it for now. Turn to one more in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 6. So we see that there was a purpose in Jesus being born without a whole lot. And he lived his life that way, too. He didn't put an emphasis on having a lot of things in his life, though he was the son of God. Paul says here in Philippians 2, beginning in verse 6, talking about Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or held on to. So he put aside all of the benefits of being God when he came down to earth. Verse 7, But he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. So imagine that, a servant. He put aside all that he had to serve mankind, to serve the human race. How did he serve us? By dying on the cross so that we can be saved so focus on that, that word servant. 
Jesus became a servant. We should be servant-minded too. We should serve in every, every capacity we have available to us. And that's not just a church. Be a serving person to your family, on the job, to the neighbors, every aspect of life. We should be like Jesus. Now, that doesn't go well with most people in society today. They look down upon a person who is a servant. They take you for granted. They may even make comments to you or, or treat you like you're nobody or nothing. You know, you try to serve people and they usually take advantage of you. And they did of Jesus too. But Jesus tells us, have that same serving attitude that he had. Verse 8. It goes on to say, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. So that was Jesus' life. He came with a serving attitude, a humble attitude. It was his life from start to finish, from the time he was placed in a manger to the time he died on the cross, and there wasn't even his own tomb to be buried in. A man had to come forth and volunteer for them to use his tomb to bury Jesus in. So from start to finish, Jesus humbly serves us all the way to the cross. Why? So that we can be saved. Amen. So that we can become rich, quote unquote. One more passage in Mark 10. Jesus' own words here. Mark 10, beginning in verse 43. You can imagine how frustrated Jesus became at times when the apostles were usually fighting with each other as to who was going to sit on his right hand and who was going to sit on his left hand. You know, Jesus wanted to say, don't you guys get it? I came here to show a serving attitude, to be lowly, to be humble. And they were fighting over who was going to be, you know, his right-hand man and his left-hand man. Notice what he says here. Mark 10, beginning in verse 43. He says in verse 42, Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So why did Luke include the story of Jesus being placed in a manger? Because it was a lowly beginning. It was the beginning of a servant. And his whole life was the same. He served us. Remember at the Last Supper, he knelt down and washed the feet of the apostles. He, he kept trying to drive this point home. Follow my example. Have a serving attitude. Be lowly. Be humble. That's the way I came and served you. That's the way you need to serve one another. So do we get, do we get that lesson? Do we catch that? How many, how many times is it repeated in the scripture with regard to Jesus' life? So a manger, why is that even mentioned? How long did Jesus stay in the manger? 
I don't know, a night or two maybe, a couple of days uh, until they moved on, on on their journey. But nevertheless, it is mentioned because there's a lesson to be learned. A lowly servant was Jesus Christ, and we should do the same. And, you know, sometimes we get into a bad attitude. We try to do some good deeds, and nobody appreciates it. We always want to have that appreciation, even a thank you, okay? But was Jesus appreciated in his day? Was Jesus thanked? I can imagine if if we were at the cross when he was dying and knowing what we know now, we'd be lined up with tears in our eyes, just thanking him for his death and what it means to us. But he was not appreciated. When he was on the cross, somebody said to him, hey, if you're the Messiah, get yourself down off that cross. But they spat at him, they swore at him, and uh, nevertheless, he kept the attitude and he served us to the very end. So let's reflect the attitude of Jesus Christ. Now we know why he was placed in a manger. Why, now we know why God went out of his way to make sure there was not a room at the inn open. Because Jesus' whole life tells us a story, a story that we need to learn. We want to be like Jesus. So humble ourselves, and even when we're not thanked and when we're not appreciated, keep on serving. When we feel we're being taken advantage of, keep on serving. It's going to please God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a powerful uh, example Jesus set for us. His life from start to finish was the life of a servant. Help us to be the same way. Help us to be service-minded all the time. Help us to look for needs and try our best to fill them. If we can give nothing more than a word of encouragement or a friendly smile to somebody, Father, let your light powerfully shine in our lives. That is our goal. We want to be like Jesus. And we know someday we will be totally like him. We'll see him face to face because we will be like him. What a powerful future you hold in store for us. So thank you, Father. And we pray that you bring it about in each of our lives.